Good morning, LBC Radio. My name is Corey Rosen, and I am part of the Story Podcast. Today, I have on a special guest. But before we get into that, I have some mer- new merchandise to sell. If you guys want a stickers, you guys can come check those out. Yeah, Leo's got one. And we also have uh, sweaters, sweatshirts coming out. We got the Story logo on the front and the first 50 guests on the back. If you're interested in any of that, please be sure to message me on Facebook or Instagram. And with all that said, I have an awesome guest today. I have Mr. Leo DeSanto, a song and story man, a compulsive adventurer, and a rural Pennsylvania yokel. With a restless curiosity and a passion for street performance, Leo DeSanto has hauled his wanderlust wagon and his guitar case everywhere from gypsy camps in Transylvania to monasteries in the high Himalayas to the boulevards of New Orleans to the wild interiors of Alaska. He sees this more or less as his existential mission to inspire and to be inspired. Known for his imaginative songwriting, powerful singing voice, exciting live performances, and captivating story, captivating storytelling, power, uh, Leo is the founding frontman of the award-winning original Americana Sorta string band, Vinegar Creek Constituency, and he also currently roams the country in the company of a wildly infused, enthusiastic brown dog named Ringo, a pair of van-dwelling nomads on a perpetual tour. You can follow Leo on his Spotify, it's just Leo DeSanto, or you can find his Vinegar Creek constituency there as well, or you can go to his website, leodesanto.com, for all of his updates and otherwise. Leo, how are you doing today? Great, nice to be here. I just want to say that your your uh, pronunciation of constituency evolved so quickly. I'm really impressed by that. <laughs> yeah, I I have over the years I've learned that I need to just repeat, 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 and that way it just gets so much better when I do that because I have a stutter naturally. Okay, and I, I see like words like when I was like Amer- I was like, oh, like, that's hard. <laughs> well, that one's made up, so I don't expect you know. Right, you're dealing with somebody who uses a lot of obscure and made up words. You know, I've kind of got the Dr. Seuss gene in there somewhere. So, <laughs> well, that's awesome, man. So, what got you inspired to do music? Was it uh, your family guitar that just was passed down to you? Was it a particular album? What was it? The short answer is the Beatles. Um, when I was a kid, um, I raided. You know, I would raid my parents' record collection. They had this old record player and a collection of, you know, original 60s, the stuff they bought when they were kids. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of Beatles albums in there. And uh, some I remember specifically really kind of lighting me up was uh, the Hard Day's Night album was one, uh, particularly the McCartney song, And I Love Her. I just, the melody was so beautiful that it kind of gave me these chills that as an eight or nine year old kid, I hadn't really experienced before. I was like, Mm -hmm. what's this strange wizardry? I've got to, I've got to learn more about this. And then I remember hearing Strawberry Fields Forever, and I think that's kind of what cut it. And uh, I can directly trace my desire to write songs and play the guitar to the Beatles. So that's, I think that's the, the easiest answer that I can give. There's a, undoubtedly a lot more involved. but Did you ever get a chance to see Paul McCartney in the, in the Baltimore this past? I did. I was there, and it was kind of like a, it felt like a milestone in my life for sure. <laughs> it felt important to see. I, for whatever reason, I'd never had the desire when I was younger, or at least I hadn't thought about it much, but I guess... As we get older and we all start thinking more about mortality, mine, his, whatever, mm-hmm. I realized how important it was to me to see him. And uh, so, yeah, my girlfriend gave me the gift of a couple of tickets and we went down and uh, it was an incredible show. Yeah, I saw so much from that. And I didn't even realize that Paul McCartney was going to be down there or else I would have forced myself to go down there yeah. as well. I only knew because I'd actually look, you know, I'd, 
after the pandemic, I thought, man, am I going to get to see Paul McCartney? And I looked and I saw that he was going on tour. Mm. So I tracked down, you know, I was on the road at the time. But I remember uh, talking to my girlfriend on the phone. I was like, we have to be on the phone when these tickets go on sale, <laughs> which fortunately, because I was on the road, she did the legwork there and tracked down the tickets. But um, yeah, I was watching for it because I, I missed him last time he came through. I think uh, 2015 or 16, he was yeah. down Hershey and a bunch of my friends went and I was kicking myself for not having been there. It sounds like the exact same story. Uh, another guest came on. Uh, he had also went and seen him. And same story. It's like, I kicked myself last time. I was like, I made sure I'm getting it this time. Yeah, exactly. I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to see the, my heroes who are still around. I went to see Willie Nelson last summer. I found out he was going to be playing in, a, in the mountains in New Hampshire, about an hour south of the town where I was playing in New Hampshire in the mountains. And uh, so I got... You know, I started getting all emotional about, man, I might never get to see Willie again. So I went and got some tickets to that, too. Yeah, I, I really kicked myself uh, when Elton John went on his last tour. Yeah. And I, but I was at the age where I, I literally couldn't afford seeing Elton John. Sure. Yeah, it's tough. The, the, the prices on some of these tickets these days make it tough to accomplish. And truth be told, there aren't that many. I don't know if there are any other living artists that I would pay to see what we paid Paul Mc, for Paul McCartney. Oh, yeah, like 500 bucks. Mm. Yeah, for like a pair of tickets. Right. And those were the cheapest seats in the house, you know. Right. There are 45,000 people there, and many of them paid double, triple, quadruple what we did for sure because we, right. were, we were like up in the nosebleeders. But. Yeah, <laughs> but even still, it's an experience for sure. Oh, it was incredible, yeah. So what grew your uh, – so did at that point, uh, listening to the Beatles, did you pick up a guitar or – Yeah, uh, it wasn't long after that. I started writing words and poems first, and that was, you know, in my late childhood, early, like, tween, I don't know, 10, you know, 11. That's when I really started to write, I think. I started picking out melodies on my mom's little Casio keyboard, learning a few chords and writing my first songs on there. But, you know, I was a kid, and I wanted to rock. I wanted to play the guitar. Mm. I wanted that scene in Back to the Future where Marty McFly hits the... Are you too young to know Back to the Future? Maybe (laughs) It's the guitar that blows him back. That's like a reference that I that like everybody in my generation would understand, but I realize it might be getting more obscure as time I goes on. I definitely remember that one. Okay, right on. So yeah, I started, then I got my first guitar at like a pawn shop. You know, there wasn't, it, it was, uh, you still bought bought things that used at music stores back then because pre-internet and everything like that. Now I get to tell old guy stories of that variety, which I, mm-hmm. I greatly relish. But uh, yeah, I got a used electric guitar. My mom had an old... Uh, classical acoustic downstairs so that was kind of what I mostly learned on and that would that would have been my early teen years 13 14 and it was always about writing songs um I wanted to be a guitarist but I wanted to be a songwriter first and foremost and the guitar was a vehicle for that yeah whenever you're a songwriter it's either guitar or piano good luck on any other instrument trying to uh pick out a melody on the song I mean I know some fantastic musicians who do uh write on other instruments or, or write without, oh, yeah. without an instrument. But then they have, some of them have expressed to me that it's, it's difficult to get it across then. Cause if you only have yourself to put it across to an audience, you know, and you're a bassist or a violinist or something mm-hmm. like that, it can be more challenging. Uh, there are people who do it very well in spite of that, but uh, yeah, sure. the, Phil Collins exists. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so at what point did you start going out and performing your music? My first gig was at my dad's wedding when I was like 16 or 17. I remember being absolutely terrified. You're right. Uh, felt like a, a, a hand was 
clamping itself around my throat the whole time, even though it was like family members and stuff. It was just the, 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 the idea that I was performing on stage in front of people was horrifying. So I, I, I hacked my way through it and then I went to the, to the keg of beer and illicitly got really drunk at the age of 17 and, and subsequently got caught. But yeah, the, there weren't, you know, I talk to people about this a lot about how much Lancaster has changed and how much the music and arts scene have grown and blossomed here. And back then there weren't that many places where a 16 year old kid could get a gig. You know, there, there was like the Chameleon Club and the Blue Star where, where the, the, the bands that were, you know, of age would play and who could draw some people in. But if you were 16, 17, trying to get your first gig, it was tough, man. There were like maybe one or two coffee shops where you could get a mm. gig. So we had like a monthly thing where my, the band that I formed, we'd play at this coffee shop, this little hippie coffee shop that no hasn't existed for decades downtown. And we had our own little scene there. It was fun. But um, there wasn't a lot of variety in our in our gig life, for sure. And now there's nothing but <laughs> nothing but variety. So what was it like to advertise back then? flyers for sure just flyers. hand-drawn flyers you're taking them all over the town and sticking them up you know which is kind of cool I still have a bunch of old flyers that my brother was especially prolific with doing our flyers and he was he was our drummer so mm. um he would make fly I still have a bunch of flyers he made us you know back in the 90s or whatever that's awesome yeah it's cool I have them on the wall in my little home studio so yeah, because back then, I guess you'd have to put it in like print, like maybe the PA mag, mag musician magazine. That's that's what I always people ask, like, how did you form bands back then? It's like, well, you had to kind of like just we we. <laughs> I remember when I formed formed my first band, I, I asked my friend Matt, who ended up being like you know one of my longest collaborators. I said, "Do you play guitar?" And he said, "No, but my mom's got one in the closet." And I said, "All right, you're in the band," you know, because there wasn't there wasn't the internet. There wasn't even uh, it was it was even before like the the dial up modem message board era or whatever. Wow. So yeah, PA musician was a thing you would do. I never got any good results from it, but you would take out an ad in PA musician saying drummer wanted whatever or you know. I don't remember if we ever advertised any gigs there. It, just, mm. it was basically the same small group of people coming each time. They'd hear hear by word of mouth. It was your friends, you know all people whose faces you would recognize. And we were in high school, so it was our high school crowd. You know, mostly a bunch of weirdos and misfits, because that's, right. that's what we were. <laughs> so at what point did you decide to, to go and travel with your music? I think the travel bug got me. I started traveling at like 18, just wandering, backpacking, stuff like that. I don't think I started traveling as a musician, though, until like 10, 12 years ago. Oh, really? Uh, that came later. For whatever reason, yeah, I when I went to college, that took up some time, and that that changed my trajectory. There was about like, I, uh, there's only ever been about a year of my life where I wasn't sure that playing music was my path. But that was when I was in college. I'd kind of gotten frustrated with not being able to get gigs and not being able to make the sounds that I could hear in my head. So I kind of turned my attention to study for that time, and then of course music came right back and bit me. And I, uh, then I realized I wasn't going to shake it. That's just that's just where I was. I was doomed to it. So then I, I started traveling for music around 2008, 2009, doing my first little tours. And I've kind of been steadily ramping it up ever since to the point where now I'm, the past few years I've been on the road about a third of the year. And I'm, I'm really into it now. And now that I'm mostly a solo act, it's a lot easier to accomplish it. Oh, sure. You know, to, to make money and to get gigs, you know. So what are some of the things that you'd have to plan for when you wanted to do a tour? 
I plan way less than most people do. You know, I've heard of other bands. They, they have like a tour book that they'll keep where they have the name. You know, everything's printed, all the, the names of the venues, where the, the hotels and the area, blah, blah, blah. I don't stay at hotels. I, I stay in my Chevy van. I've been converting it myself for a few years, kind of a work in progress into a little camper van. I've got my bed and my sink and little things in there. So I never know where I'm going to sleep when I play a gig. Almost never. If I know somebody in that town, I might know I'm going to camp at their house in their yard. But basically, I just park the van. Sometimes it's on the street in front of the venue. Sometimes it's in a park. Sometimes it's in front of somebody's house or in their yard or, you know, something luxurious like that where you can plug Mm -hmm. in and everything. So I I plan very little. I know where I'm going. I know where I'm booked to play. But that's not even the end of the story a lot of the time because uh, gigs will come my way as I go. Somebody will be like, hey, you want to play at my house tomorrow? And we'll get a bunch of people. Yeah, yeah, sure. Some bar. Sometimes I'll just go into a bar if I have a night off and say, hey, do you need any music? You know, Mm. I'll play for tips. I mean, I don't don't play for tips, people. That's not cool unless you're just starting out. But if you have no gig and that's the only gig you're going to get, then then. uh, Whoa. Why do you say that? Uh, because for professional musicians who have spent years honing their craft to play it without, without the venue having to pay them anything devalues the craft because, you know, you wouldn't expect a carpenter to come to your house and like, Hey, would you build me a, you know, would you frame out a doorway for me? And if, if, if you do a good job, you know, well, and we like it and we have a little extra money in our pocket, we'll throw it your way. It's like, no, he's going to expect to be paid. And music, as you know, is a highly specialized thing that requires really high levels of devotion and work and training and everything like that. So it's my belief that musicians should always be paid for their work unless they have volunteered not to be. That's not to say you never play for tips. I mean, I'm a busker. I play on the street, mm-hmm. so a lot of times I'm playing just for tips, but I decide that. you know, that's, Right, okay, gotcha. I'm not making money for someone else or I'm not contributing value to someone else's business and they're not giving me anything. That, that I'm, I'm, It's something I've become pretty stern about over the years, and I... I urge other musicians to do the same because when you when you agree to do shows for for pennies or peanuts or whatever you're hurting everyone because then you you teach it's it's validating that that practice it's a precedent yeah exactly yeah. it's a precedent that says you know musicians don't really need to be paid they like what they do you know they they right. they, they love it they'd be out there doing it in their bedrooms anyway it's like well maybe but you know they wouldn't have to drag their stuff all over creation and set it up for you and play in your restaurant for 3 hours <laughs> right that, that's so that that's fair so anytime you want to play for tips make sure you're the one that's setting that up. yeah i mean yeah. you know everybody has their own i'll do things I, I have my own reasons for what what rate i will be willing to accept for any given thing and it's going to vary from situation to situation you know people ask me oftentimes like what's your rate and i say well it depends on so many things you know but you know know why you're doing what you're doing now if you're just starting out and you're taking your first gig it you know, your uncle's party or something like that, then, and they just are going to put out the tip jar for you, then cool, do that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's your, your paying. They call that paying your dues. But, but if you're a professional musician, I'm 43 years old, you know, I've been paying them for quite a while. <laughs> right. <laughs> so what are some of the things that uh, you had to prepare for, for the, like the van life experience? I found myself pretty well suited to it uh, from the get-go, to be honest, because uh, when I traveled when I was younger, I didn't even have a van or a car most of the time. I just had a backpack and my guitar. Mm. So I had a tent in the backpack and a sleeping bag and a little one of those like mess kits from Walmart where mm-hmm. you cook up in the aluminum gear and everything. So to me, having a van is like is like the Ritz. You know, it's like a right. five star hotel. It's like I have a bed that's comfortable, and honestly, I sleep better in that thing than I do uh, in the bed that I built in my van than I do in my much more expensive bed back home. Um, 
Yeah. So for me, it's not a challenging lifestyle. For some people, it would be very challenging, but I really love it. I love the freedom that it affords and, uh, you know, the feeling of still kind of camping somewhat. But uh, you just have to figure out what things are going to be kind of um, deal breakers for you. Like, what do you need? Some people say, oh, I could never travel without a shower. And I say, well, that's not a problem for me. You know, I, I'll always meet somebody in a town or else I know I, you, the more you travel, the more people you know, and there's always somebody who will let you take a shower. If not that, then you pay for 25 bucks for some night for a state park and get a shower there at their shower house. For me, the deal breaker was the sink, you know, just being able to wake up and splash some water on your face or wash your dishes without holding them under a plastic jug or whatever. So uh, I built myself a sink, um, and then now I'm building some shelves. You just have to figure out what you need to be comfortable and then and that's going to vary for everyone. Some people will need a full shower and bathroom set up. Mm-hmm. For me, if I have a sink and a laundry detergent jug, I'm good. <laughs> that's fine. Yeah, the, it's van life has kind of popped up recent, at least in the yeah, past few years, for it really sure. Has, yeah. Um, I've always wanted to be able to do something like, for a long time. I, I wanted to do the sailboat life. Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah, I would love to do that too, except I have no skill with sailing at all. Kayaking's the farthest I get, the closest I get. <laughs> I used to do sailing in Boy Scouts, and it's just cash. And when, it, when then when I saw everyone else doing like sailboat life and like traveling the world, I was like, oh, that would be so cool. Oh man, yeah. But my last time I was up in Maine last summer, a friend of mine who lives up there is a sailboat captain, and uh, I did I interviewed him for my little patrons only Patreon podcast that I do, and uh, he was talking about how when he was young he built his own boat and then he like, sailed across to Ireland, and I just thought uh, to me that just sounds like an adventure story of all adventure oh, oh, yeah, stories exactly you're out there on the sea which to me is far you know the highway is something i know and understand and the sea is something that's like unfamiliar and terrifying and powerful right. and and that really just excited my imagination to to think of him doing that by himself you know at such a young age i know it's like, I, I i like watching the videos of like when the sea is like really rough and you see people like standing like this yeah it's wild <laughs> it's, like, it's like how would you even manage to like because you can go anywhere yeah. Lit, uh, granted, as long as you have like a passport, but you can go anywhere though. Yeah, if you're a good sailor, I mean, and and you're, and you're a the thing. One of the things I love about travel is the solitude that it sometimes affords. But when you're on the street and you're in gas stations, and everything it's not solitude yeah, necessarily. Yeah. But you would be, uh, you would have the place to yourself, so to speak, a lot of the time if you were doing it in a sailboat. Yeah, it, it would. It'd be mind blowing to me to be on a sailboat by myself and look around, and all there was was water. Oh yeah, it's terrifying and exciting at the same time. I feel the same way. Maybe that maybe that'll be a future evolution for me uh, as an older man. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll take to the sea. I like to think something like that. I mean, I am uh, prone to big cha- sudden changes like that. So, so I'm curious, what was it like to travel different countries? Uh, did you? I assume you didn't bring a van to no, other countries. No, uh, for I've never I've never had a vehicle o- overseas at all. Um, the first time I really traveled as a musician abroad was in 2014 and the band Vinegar Creek constituency, my string band, we had a few festival bookings and club bookings in Ireland. And so we went over there and we toured for about two weeks. And then I just took my backpack and my guitar and crossed over to France on a boat and uh, just started setting up my case on the street. And it was pretty terrifying at first. I'll be honest. You know, I had a, romantic vision of it in my head which actually turned out to it did actually turn out to be very fortuitous and romantic and like almost like the hands of the gods were helping me along but uh the first day I remember just setting up in this little town called Morlaix 
in France near the coast. And I started playing and there were like two people walking by. I, could, I hadn't been able to communicate with anyone in town because they didn't speak English. It was this small town. And I, I was just seized by this wave of pain. Like I've made a terrible mistake. The next, you know, I had no return ticket. The next however much of my life was devoted to this. And I had, you know, maybe a couple of thousand bucks in the bank, enough to get by for a couple of weeks or something. But I was like, man, I'm going to go broke and I'm going to go home and defeat. And this is going to be terrible. And then a couple of guys wandered by from this farm market that was closing down and they 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 had liked what they heard and they stopped and listened. One of them bought a CD. A few more people trickled by, started gathering. Next thing I knew, I had like, you know, 40, 50 euro, which was enough for my hostel bed and my train to the next town. I was like, this is going to work. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I did for the next three months and all the way across to uh, eastern Romania. So really, was it really just like, I'm going to send it, complete send it and hope that it works out? Basically, yeah. I mean, you know, I'd gone through some personal changes in my life at that point and I just kind of felt like turning a page really in a fairly dramatic way and I also wanted to see what that would do for me as a musician just to be play I didn't really have any gigs after Ireland I was just uh, I ended up getting a few you know a few bars that would let me play and stuff but I just wanted to see you know if I could ride that magic carpet and see <laughs> see how long it would and it 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 really worked well I mean in Europe particularly because the public transport's so good oh, yeah. and like that you know it would, it would be it would be a lot slower to make your way across America that way because you, I've done it in parts of America, including some pretty remote parts like Alaska. But the uh, thing about Alaska is it's still very easy to hitchhike there. So oh, really? You, you got, yeah. They, it's hard to get rides in the lower 48 anymore. People are too scared. But Alaska's so big and wild, and there's bears everywhere. People see you out on the road, they usually just they'll pick you up. <laughs> right. So when there's a threat of polar bears coming after you, maybe you should pick somebody up. Like, yeah, you're like, yeah, that guy's out here. Once the grizzlies get moving, it won't. Uh, yeah, it's not going to last very long. And they're just not scared. You know, they probably all have guns and stuff. Right. In there, exactly. In their yeah. And everything too. So it's a different different type of vibe. But yeah, it's if you tried to get across Texas, say, like, where are you even going to play on the street? You're going to be playing for tumbleweeds most of the time. <laughs> It that's it's so crazy because I I love the idea of Europe where you can literally because of the union that they have you can just travel anywhere yeah and it's and it's people don't realize how small Europe is compared is, to the yeah. US I mean it's you're talking about like states more than countries right exactly size wise you know you go across Netherlands it's like you know it's like going across New Jersey or something like that right <laughs> and and often with like hitchhiking you can find a hitchhiker from like from like switzerland and they're already going to italy yeah. or they're already going to france or they're already going to germany so you could just be like hey i'm i want to head to the uk can you take me as far as france yeah it's cool because it's very easy to get around and the cultures change dramatically in a short space you know like if you're traveling around the u.s you're going to see some very different cultures between like maine and like appalachian tennessee mm -hmm. and like austin texas or whatever you're going to see some some things change pretty dramatically culturally but in Europe, you're talking completely different languages, completely different histories dating back thousands yeah. of years, the architecture, right. the food, everything. Like you cross a border and it's like the line's a little blurrier than the border itself, but it shifts hard, you know. Yeah, it's it's like even in a space like Italy, um, where you have like the northern part and like the south, southern part, it's completely different oh, in, yeah. in a lot oh, of yeah. cases. Southern Italy is way different. And then like a Germany. people aren't ready for southern Italy. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. What's 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 it all about? Oh, they just I've heard it said that s Southern Italy is like the most Italian Italy, 
Which, you know, I'm sure Northern Italians would take exception to that. Be like, what, what does that even mean? Right. <laughs> uh, it's like, it's just a different vibe. It's louder. It's brasher. It's uh, it's aggressive in a way. Mm. You know, like if you go to Naples or something, it's just there's noise in the streets and people selling things and kids like tearing around on their mopeds. And that it's makes just sense, a, actually. Yeah. I mean, it it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a much, I feel like climate differences have something to do with this, you know? Like, well, not only that, but it's, it's trade. Because like Southern Italy, it's on the Mediterranean Sea. You have yeah. all that Mediterranean trade going on. Upper Italy, it's mountains. Yeah, much, right. For the so most it's, part. Yeah, this is a different vibe. Just like, you know, people are different if you're in Florida or Maine. You know. So what were some of the biggest culture shocks that you uh, got while being over in Europe? Or even the Himalayas? Um. The level of poverty that you encounter in some other countries is something that I don't think a lot of Americans have seen. Not that we don't have it. You know, there are parts of Appalachia that are as poor as a developing nation, most likely, uh, or, or close to it. But, um, you know, to see, like, the, the gypsy camps on the street in Romania, things like that, or else, uh, <clears throat> you know, some of the um, indigenous people in Mexico, and, you know, you're talking about... Co- little towns that are made of cardboard and like tarps oh, taped yeah. together nailed together and stuff so that's something just the you know the kind of abject poverty that that i don't know i mean i feel like that's becoming more apparent in the u.s too though you know like with uh there's more and more people living on the streets so so maybe that won't maybe that's not as much of a culture shock as we'd like to think <laughs> and uh you know the music the way that music is received and, and uh shared in different cultures is was something that hit me pretty hard too. Just like in Ireland, for example, where I've spent a lot of time playing music, there's kind of just this like cultural uh, bent for telling a story or delivering a song. Oh, yeah. You know, we'd, we'd be doing a jam in some little bar on an island in Galway Bay in the middle of the night and just like a fisherman would stand up and belt one out and sit back down, you know, or just some old woman on a bar stool singing some beautiful old ballad. And when you talk to them, they have this kind of knack for storytelling like that, too. And I found that people were always curious about us when we were walking around with our instruments in Ireland. Like, hey, where are you from? Where are you going? Where are you playing? What kind of music is it? You know, they, whereas it's possible to do a gig in, in an American bar and be ignored by everyone in the room for Absolutely. most of the gig. Now, that's not to say America appreciates music less exactly. That's not what I'm trying to say. But there are places where it's where it's treated a lot differently than it is here. Yeah, it, um, having almost been to Ireland, but uh, having to n- know a lot of Irish singing because we were, we were supposed to tour Ireland, uh, but then the day we were supposed to go, the pandemic hit. Oh, it, so it got canceled. Man, that yeah. must have been a bummer. I know. We were supposed to play in like St. Patrick's Cathedral. Oh, I know. And we were going to be there for St. Patrick's <laughs> Day too. Heartbra- so like, that's, heart- that's heartbreaking I know, stuff. It was, it was so heartbreaking. But I hope you get to do it later. I hope <laughs> so too. Um, but... Just hearing the the Irish music, it is very much storytelling driven, oh, yeah. oh, and yeah. it's so it's so inspiring. Like uh, just the the stories that they have about their, um, not architecture, the geography yeah. there, because it's some of the most beautiful geography you you would ever see. It's, it's an absolutely stunning stunning place, uh, and I I'm totally in love with the culture and the people and the landscapes of that country. I've I think I've been fortunate enough to tour there three times, and. Uh, I intend to, uh, for those not to let be the last three times, you know, <laughs> I intend to do it again. It's been been a few years, but not too many. It's been about four years. I'm curious, what drove you to the Himalayan monasteries? Just a love of the mountains and a love of remote places, really. Um, 
that was a trek that I went on with a, a friend of mine locally who um, organizes his business is called Sky Chasers. I'm not sure exactly what what they're do what they are or aren't doing right now, but um, they put together treks of the Himalayas and everything. And uh, I went along, and I was it was kind of my job to blog the trip and kind of write about it and show people back home what we were up to, which was a lot of really strenuous mountain hiking and uh, with some Sherpas and like a ending on a twenty thousand foot peak climb, which was the most physically grueling and psychologically horrifying thing I've ever done. <laughs> As such, it's a treasured experience now. But um, I brought this mandolin with me because I, you know, I don't want to have a guitar all the way through the mountains. But right. I brought this mandolin, and I, because I loved backpacking my whole life, I insisted on carrying my whole my own pack and not letting the Sherpas do it. So the one thing that the Sherpas carried for me was the mandolin. <laughs> so what is the Sherpa? A Sherpas are uh, an indigenous uh, people of the the Himalayan mountains. They're uh, they they live in the mountains and they're they're renowned as mountain guides and mountaineers. Mm-hmm. Um, a Sherpa Tenzing Norgay was with Sir Edmund Hillary, the first two people to uh, summit Everest, the first oh, expedition. Wow. So now they often serve as guides, and their their abilities. You know, I mean, I guess you adapt physically to wherever you are, but the abilities of the Sherpas to hike with very little water and with very little apparent fatigue in the mountains just looks like they look like super people to me. You know, like just the stuff that you see them hopping around the mountains and and just beautiful, fun loving, generous, kind people too. Uh, awesome. You know, welcome you into their homes, and I've got a lot of uh, Sherpa friends on social media now. <laughs> but yeah, so that wasn't that that trip wasn't about music. It was more about adventure. But I had this mandolin, so when we would stop in the uh, the lodges or whatever, occasionally I'd get it busted out and get a little dance party going. With the the Sherpas love to dance too, so uh, you know, we'd just play in the in the lodges or in someone's home or whatever. Did you ever get to see Everest? Oh yeah. Yeah, I got I got a few good looks at it. Sometimes it hides in the clouds because she's so tall. But That's uh, wild. yeah, I did get a few good clear looks and photos. And we um we stayed at Everest Base Camp one night too. When we were That's cool. That's <clears throat> it's terrifying uh, to think because we we have around here we have like the Appalachian Mountains. But if you look at like a top- topography map. They're nothing. It's nothing like it. The Appalachians, they think, are, are very old and ancient. Oh, they're older is, than bone itself. Uh, really? <laughs> yeah, There's you'll go some caves in there, there's no fossils whatsoever. Oh, yeah, I'll bet. Well, that's why the, I, I've heard anyway. I don't want to go talking like I know what I'm talking about. But I've heard that that's one of the reasons that they're kind of more gradual and rounded is because they've just weathered. Yeah, I've heard they were once as, as tall as the Rockies and that they're Yeah, just over just time, erosion and wind. That's and, wild to yep. think about. But it's really given them their own character. The Appalachians are one of my favorite beautiful places too. But the Himalayans are like stark and terrifying and just like sure. how – you know, we were we'd be walking trails, and there's a sheer two thousand foot drop right here on a trail as wide as your hiking boot. Which I've always had a bit of a thing about heights, so it was it, I really had to face some uh, personal. You know, I really thrive on kind of pushing the bounds of my comfort zone, and I had to push way through them on that whole trip. Yeah, I bet the it, heights were just. I mean, it's like wow. There's no question. Like if you step over there, you're not only will you die, but they'll never find your body. They will literally right. never recover you because there's this. We're out in the middle of this remote place and just for someone to go down there to try to get you would be risking their life you know so. it's it's crazy to me like I, I hear all these stories about mount everest about how people just you know because they die on mount everest oh yeah there's bodies just dotting the because it's they're frozen and they yeah. can't get they can't get them down and now they're landmarks it's like oh we'll pass by this 
frozen person, and you, then yeah. there's a there's a base right there. Our, our our Sherpa guides would would tell us stories in the lodges at night about people they were taking up Everest who died, and they and what they had to do to get the body down and everything, take it across the glacier. You know, there's like ladders crossing these uh, these giant chasms in the glacier, these crevasses. Oh They'll eat you. So they're like carry, carrying frozen bodies on ropes across crevasses and lowering them down the cliffs. It was just like they were. The Sherpas were laughing about it, but it was it was quite horrifying. Right. <laughs> it's 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 so wild that. Oh my goodness! I understand the human drive to like push, but oh my gosh, the the tragedy that that can occur. The, yeah. Well, the thing with Everest too now is that there are so many tour operators taking people up there that you have to almost wait in line as you're going up to the summit. And that didn't used to be a thing. It used to be that you had to be an exceptional athlete and very well-trained to even get there. And now, because of these companies are making it accessible to people who maybe really shouldn't be up there. You know, maybe there are some places that should be elite where 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 it's not just that you have enough money, but you have have done the work, you know. Right, because that's very much dangerous if you haven't done the work or if you, if you've never hiked in your life and you're just like I just want to go to Mount Everest. That's not how it works. Yeah, no, but these days, very wealthy people. I mean, they still have to do a lot of work. It's oh, sure. To get up there, I mean, it's not an easy feat. It's not like they go up on a tram, so mm-hmm. they they have to have some idea what they're getting in for. But um, I've heard that the scene up there is kind of crazy now that on a on a clear day, you've got a line of people up the Hillary step, which is the really steep section right before the summit where you have to kind of cram yourself into a little crevice of rock. And I think they put ropes there. There's like permanent ropes there now. Still, though, climbing Mount Everest is a, uh, a, a feat, feat if you yeah. do it <laughs> for anyone. I'm not saying it's not. Right. You know. so, uh, there's 7 billion people in this world, and you're probably one of like not even not even maybe – Ten thousand. It's a small. It? It's a small club. A small yeah. club. Yeah. And yet, and yet, I know people who have done it half a dozen times. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Uh. So, how has this perspective like really influenced your music? All and influence are getting to know all of these cultures, getting to interact with all these cultures. How has that influenced your music, your songwriting at all, if at all? I think. I think. Uh, I heard a quote. I forget for who it was from the other day. It was on a podcast, and someone was being quoted some writer where it was like you know writers are people with interesting lives so it's kind of like it's always been interesting interesting to me the balance that I want to shoot for between that you know because theoretically you could lock yourself in a room for 10 12 hours a day just practicing guitar scales and some there are people out there like Steve Vai or somebody who might have taken, <laughs> taken that or Joe Satriani or whoever you could just sit or, or vocal scales or whatever you're doing or I could just lock myself away all day and write songs but to me as kind of like somebody who's interested in storytelling and poetry. Uh, there's a lot of living. Living is like the part of the iceberg that's under the water, and the music is like the part of the iceberg mm-hmm. that's above the water. It's a much smaller part. So just having adventures and feeling inspired and having my uh, the boundaries of what I consider to be the realm of the possible or even the imaginable just kind of expanded and pushed. And it's like, oh, okay. I feel like the more ways, the, the more facets of, of things you can see, um, or that you have tried to see the more interesting of stuff you might make. At least it stands to reason, and that's my hope. Um, you know, whether that whether that's true for my stuff is up to anybody who's listening to it or or hearing it. But um, I think it definitely. I think that's kind of like the the raw materials of all of it, and definitely my travels have inspired many songs I write when I'm on the road a lot. Um, so, what are some future projects for you? 
so I, I guess it was around the beginning of the pandemic when I kind of kind of became committed to a, a solo predominantly solo career as, as opposed to playing with bands a lot or or playing with a band under a band name you know mm-hmm. like most of my gigs had been with vinegar creek constituency uh over the past decade decade and a half we've been together for a long time and we still are we still we're still an active band and we still play a few times a year but um so developing kind of as a solo artist is kind of my project right now and i just i released an album six months ago that uh i made during the pandemic um with a lot of brilliant musicians on it and we just had a release party for it the other night so now that's the project right now is just developing as a solo performer and a solo recording artist which also includes having a backing band sometimes um getting ready to start work on another album hopefully by the end of this year and uh, continue to develop as a touring act because that's something that's become really important to me. I want to spend a lot of time on the road. I love the the travel life and playing for people in different. And I pick the places I want to go to. You know, I don't really like. It's not like I have to I have to book a gig in Los Angeles or something. Not not that mm. I wouldn't want to go there, but uh, I go to like coastal Maine or you know Key West or something like that. Places, spots places you want to go. Yeah, I base my touring. Because the whole thing is what turns out to be your life, you know. If you're working towards a goal but you're not enjoying that process, then you might have your focus in the wrong spot, spatial, temporally, or whatever. But mm-hmm. so, uh, uh, I try to just make it so that I'm enjoying the whole ride, and then uh, I figure I'm already at the destination. If that's the case, you know, mm-hmm. I've already reached the destination because I'm living a life that I really dig living. So, so do you like to? Uh, primarily write albums or song, song or singles. I'm st- I'm still kind of album oriented just because that's how I grew up listening to music and I'm you know maybe the set last or second to last generation that's going to be able to say that. But when I was talking about how I became inspired to play, I mean that was all vinyl records I was listening to then, and then of course lived through the age of the cassette and the compact disc. Um, I like the idea of having a a group of songs that offset each other in certain ways and that have kind of a certain dynamic tension between them. So I do like making albums, but I also recognize that singles are kind of the way things are going technologically with Spotify and and, uh, the streaming platforms and all that. And man, I mean, it's a lot easier to afford, but it's still not cheap. You know, I I released a single last Christmas and, you know, it it was very, very expensive to make it, you know. I mean, of course, doing an album is more so... But a lot of the costs are going to be there right off the top when you do the single. I mean, you're already paying for studio time and mastering and um, mm-hmm. circulation and everything like that. But I'm going to keep doing albums, you know. Sometimes I might release, I might do a single and release it and then it'll be released again on an album later, something like that. But I, I like the album as an art form, so um, I wouldn't really want to give it up, I don't think, and just release singles. Although some bands have said they're going that way these days, and I get it for sure. So, what's the appeal to an album as a as opposed to a single? Well, just just what I was kind of just trying to describe, which is that the the songs play off each other in a way that they create a certain dynamic. It's a certain kind of journey that you take when you listen to an album, and one song takes you here, and then the, the next song zags, and the next one zigs, and the next ones heart breaks your heart and then the next one makes you laugh 
And that plays off of those elements play off each other in a way that it creates a, a trip, you know, it creates a journey. You're not, that's not going to happen with what, mm-hmm. I mean, one song is a journey too. It's a shorter journey, but it's, a, I consider an album a different kind of musical art form than just a song. It's, you know, it's like this meta organism where all the different things are working together. And I, I just find it very interesting to work that way. And do you think that because of the way uh, music makes you feel that it's really intrinsic to to listen to music all the time or yeah i mean yeah you, I, I think that you know I, I was i was say i was talking to to kevin from the lancaster newspaper the other day he did this really nice article about my release show and we were talking about you know how about listening to all different sorts of music and uh you know i think that's that's kind of important just to you know, obviously to feed the muse. Music's very much a, a kind of a conversation and like a continuum between you and all the people that have influenced you and all the other people that have gone before. And uh, so, yeah, I, but but the thing that he and I were discussing is kind of my view of music is just like a tool that people can use, just something that, you know, you use in your daily life, you know, whether you're a musician getting inspiration or it's just like, this is the song that I listen to when I'm holding the baby and cooking an omelet or whatever, you know, uh, sometimes people will say, you know, I was dancing around with my daughter in the barn to your, to, you know, this Vinegar Creek record or something. And that's, that's the, that makes me feel better than anything could, you know, just right. people are using these things. So I think music's something very practical for all of us to, to use for, in different ways when we're, when we're heartbroken or when we're celebrating or, you know, whatever, uh, there's a song for every, every condition, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I'm curious about your your release party. Uh, what goes into something like that? A lot did for this. Uh, it was definitely like a more pl- kind of planning intensive yeah. show than I've ever done before. Well, not than I've ever done. I've done other ones like it. But um, than I usually do, you know, a lot of my gigs being I just show up at a bar and a restaurant and sit up in the corner and play. But uh, yeah, uh, well, I had to put together a band a rock band, which I haven't played with a rock band in a really long time. So there was that element of it. That was a whole thing. And then, uh, we had a few other friends of mine who, who loaned their beautiful talents to us for the evening. Um, you know, Jordan Capizzi from Nielsen family band and uh, a band called the dime store dolls. So, um, it's just kind of a promotion thing, I guess, when you're doing a show like this, because it's not just a restaurant where people are getting, I mean, they do have a restaurant at Zotropolis next door, but it, the theater is just a theater and mm-hmm. you know so that's a situation where you know you just have to try to get people in the room with you so you can all have, have a nice experience together so there's a lot more thinking about uh, promoting it and getting it into people's heads that it's happening and you know. did, did the newspaper come to you or did you have to reach out to the newspaper um, I ran into Kevin who's a he, he's a he's a musician too, Kevin Steriker who writes for the uh, writes the music articles for LNP He's a musician and a songwriter himself, and we were on a bill together at, a, at a, another Zootropolis show, actually, last year, and then I ran into him uh, at another local show, the Refugee Concert at Telus 360, and he offered to, he was like, hey, you know, I'd, you know, I was thinking I'd do a piece on it, and I was like, oh, please do, thank you, <laughs> and I was really appreciative of that, and he, he's, he's a really excellent writer, too, so that was a fun chat to have. Awesome, man. Yeah. Uh, we're kind of... Ending out our time. Unfortunately, we we have to get out of here a little bit sooner than than I'd like to. Um, so I have a few questions for you. Sure. What are some maybe mistakes that you have made 
or you've seen other people make that that you uh, wish other people not to make? And how do we get around that? There's an easy number one. There's an easy public enemy number one when it comes to being an artist and making mistakes. And I'm going to share it with you in hopes that it'll it'll uh, prevent some pain for some people. <laughs> There's a Teddy Roosevelt quote, comparison is the thief of joy. This is not your friend. Don't compare yourself to other artists and other musicians in terms of where you think you should be or what you think you deserve or even what you're doing at all because you will absolutely hate your life. <laughs> you will not enjoy <laughs> your artwork. And uh, other people might not either because you'll be so miserable that you'll have nothing but misery to share. So just focus on your own work. You let other people inspire you, but don't let them make you feel bad about yourself or about them for that matter. You know, don't don't spend a lot of time uh, talking down about other artists or mm. why you're better than them or what they're not doing right. You know, learn what you can learn from them and apply it. Put your head down and do your own work and just know that your your job as an artist is to grow and to change and to develop your craft and put your head there instead of like, why aren't I doing these bigger shows or why aren't I getting enough gigs or, you know, whatever it is, just know that better things will come. And I wish I'd known that for so many years, you know, because I, my life is so much more fun now and I really just enjoy what I'm doing. I really just enjoy it all the time. I enjoy working with other people. I don't feel jealous of them. I don't feel resentful towards them. I just enjoy it. And you can uh, then take in what other people are doing with an open heart and you can uh, approach your own stuff the same way. So It's it's really important to remember that music is a communal activity. And 100%. so it's, it's, it's a togetherness, not, it's shared, not, yeah. a, not a division. Absolutely. Totally agree. So kind of on that same train, your brother does a lot of music. Mm -hmm. Nick, Nick yeah. DeSanto, he's a one-man band. Yeah, Lancaster doesn't have anybody else like him. Right. <laughs> In fact, the world doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what was it like growing up with him? Was that a comparison ever a struggle with, with, with him while he was around? Or? No, actually, uh, Nick and I really fed each other, I think. And, and, you know, people often ask, like, were your parents musicians? You know, my mom sang to us a lot. That was a big thing, you know. But uh, I think Nick and I helped each other grow as, as artists far more than, or as much as any other influence, for sure. Because we were always just kind of goofing. Or we were, like, close enough in age that we were buddies. So, mm. we, you know, we, we'd have fist fights like little kids do. We'd be punching each other in the head, and then the next day, the next minute we'd be making up little songs together. So we'd kind of goof on. We'd make up little characters singing goofy, silly songs, and we'd record them on tape recorders and you know, little cassette recorders or whatever. We used to, like, to put the record player on and we'd like pan, pan some of these records real hard so that the voices would kind of go out of them. We'd do our voices over. <laughs> like oh, wow. we, we have groups where we pretend that we'd take the Beatles out of Beatles records and we'd pretend to be the Beatles. <laughs> our little prepubescent British accents. So, uh, and then when we started playing in bands, it very quickly, we, the bands were together. So like there was never like a, a competitive thing between Nick and I. It was we were always collaborators, uh, and we still were. You know, he was on stage with me just the other night. So that's awesome. Uh, one last question before we get into some of your music: What is maybe something? Uh, oh, you. This is a full time gig for you now. Yeah. How did you How did you make that? It was kind of a transition over time. You know, I was a uh, working as an independent house painter for, uh, for out of college because it was a job. You know, a lot of musicians end up being house painters if they need some extra income because it's kind of a come and go as you please. And mm -hmm. 
painters and musicians both tend to draw from groups of kind of misfits that don't aren't real well suited towards the the job clock punching lifestyle and that's definitely me i've never really had held jobs in my life um so i was working as a full-time painter and i just started getting more and more gigs and doing less and less painting and eventually uh eventually i i, I realized you know I, I don't think i need to do this anymore <laughs> Uh, I still take a paint job now and again. I do a couple every year. It's a nice little extra income towards an album or something. Good to have a trade. Yeah. You can fall back on if you need it. So um, you just had your album release, and I want to bring up one of the songs from that. This is The Happy uh, Ending? It's, It's called Is This the Happy Ending? Is This the Happy Ending? Tell me about it. Yeah. All right. Well, this one, this is a little, a little heavy, but this is a song that I wrote uh, in response to my dad's death of cancer. Mm. Uh, and so, uh, but it, the title of the album comes from this song through the chorus as the line, I'm not sad. And, and the way I, that kind of the inspiration for that was a, a writer I love named Tom Robbins, who it, it goes, it's older than Robbins that the Buddhists have been talking about this for, for, you know, thousand years. But, um, Tom Robbins talked about what he called joy in spite of it all, you know, kind of mm. a, a refusal to let the suffering of the world um, ruin your, your, your joy in life, you know. And so that's kind of, I think that's kind of the angle of this song. But I put a lot of my dad's favorite things in it, uh, his favorite baseball players and his favorite magicians and his favorite kind of movie genres in hopes that it would uh, get to him wherever he might be. With that said, this is, Is This the Happy Ending? by Mr. Leo DeSanto. The moon's not blue This ain't some cowboy Guitars fade, but it's not Morricone. It doesn't sound like much of anyone, anyone has heard before. Yeah. 
a happy ending from Mr. Leo DeSanto from his album I'm Not Sad you know it, it reminds me of because uh, I lost my mother when I was very young she just died of a heart attack at uh, she was 40 years old just well, all yeah. of a sudden gone and it, it really made me mad I was like why but uh, that especially that young oh yeah and I was a total mama's boy like no, complete man. mama's boy. That's really hard. And um, but what I learned later on is she she donated her uh, organs to like science, and uh, I I learned that uh, they couldn't take any of her organs or any part of her body because it was just so damaged. So had she wow. kept on living, she would have been in so much immense pain. Uh, so uh, kind of I hate to be like a burden, but it truly would have been a burden. We we aren't you know most financial people in the world. Did that did that help you to accept it a little bit? Oh, absolutely! Yeah. It, it it was because I'm I'm a Christian, so yeah. I was like, well, I I was angry at God for taking her away from me, but then I was like, you know what? Taking her away in in the most peaceful way, where she probably didn't feel any pain, she just went to sleep, and that was it. And I was like, that's probably that's I'm I'm happy that happened instead of her living her life in pain and agony. You know, for, with my with my father, it was somewhat of a blessing too, really, because he, the last year of his life was it was just intense suffering, mm-hmm. nonstop. You know, so uh, 
there was a bit there is a bit of sweetness to him being released as well you know you, of course you wish the whole thing hadn't happened so, right. so soon but uh you know yeah i know what you mean about that making it a little easier to let go yeah, yeah. it's okay cuz i'm not sad <laughs> yeah exactly so exactly. uh like where can they find you and your albums and your music I'm lurking all over the internet like most people. Not TikTok, though, because I had to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> I told somebody the other day at a show, they were like, you should get TikTok. And I was like, no, this is the hill I'm prepared to get old on. You know, right. I'm not, not going to do TikTok. I don't know. But, you know, maybe next year I'll be all, a, a big TikTok star, famouser in hell. But I don't know. Um, anyway, I'm on uh, I'm on all the streaming platforms, uh, Spotify, Apple, whatever you use. I'm on there. Uh, my website is leodesanto.com. You can get in touch with me through there. You can read stories, articles I've written about my travel or song lyrics. Or Some people have told me it's a pretty fun uh, place to hang out on the Internet, which is a compliment that I uh, appreciated receiving. And then, you know, you can follow me on the Facebook and the Instagram, a lot of travel stories, travel photos. Uh, the handle is this is Leo DeSanto. And you also have a Patreon? A Patreon, yeah, which is really important. That really helps me do my touring and recording. Um, it's a subscription platform. You can just pledge like a dollar. You know, you might pay two bucks a month and you get uh, special video content and story content other people don't get. And you become a patron of the arts. You know, you uh, every everything I make, you get it. Sometimes I share like demos of songs, kind of personal things. There. I'm like, hey, here's something I just wrote. You know, what do you guys think of it? And then later on, it'll change and appear on an album, whatever. It's kind of a cool way to interact with people who uh, enjoy your work. And it's really important for me. The income has become very important to me. So I'm glad you uh, reminded me to mention that, too. Yeah. um, In fact, I'd like you to say the name of it. It's Patreon. Mine is Patreon.com slash Leo DeSanto. Okay, so it's just your name. Okay. Yeah. Um, so with all that said, you can follow us, uh, the story podcast on facebook.com forward slash the story, Corey Rosen. That's C O C O R Y R O S E N. I almost forgot my name there for a second. It's happened to me (laughs) (laughs) for sure. (laughs) You can follow us on all streaming platforms. If you search up the story, Corey Rosen, it is the, the neon red, uh, I'm forgetting all sorts of words. Neon red letters. The story with the big brick. It's, brick it's distinctive. You'll know it when you see it. You'll know. You'll, you'll know it when you see it's it. It's a good catchy logo. It's a good. It's a good nice logo. Yeah. I'm. I'm actually gonna have a sign made, like an actual neon sign made for this. Nice. Yeah, because I feel like that'd be just dope. That would be cool. <laughs> um. Yeah, so you can follow us there. You can follow me on Instagram at the underscore story underscore podcast and uh there along with Facebook is where you'll find new guests and you can find my merchandise there, which is these stickers that are really five inch by two inch vinyl stickers. They're really good really long lasting. And you can buy a hoodie that will have the logo on the front and the first 50 guests that includes Mr. Leo DeSanto on the back. So if you have enjoyed, please be sure to like subscribe, share. And if you want to check out Leo, be sure to check out all of his stuff at, at his website and all the good things. With all that said, we're going to have to sign off, and I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day, and see you guys later.